Welcome to This Week in Astrology. This is episode number 366 for the week of June 2nd, 2014. This Week in Astrology is the free podcast that deepens your astrological wisdom. We always start with the coming week's astrological forecast and regularly feature listener emails, recorded listener consultations, and interviews with other astrologers. Make This Week in Astrology a regular part of your astrological education. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Benjamin Bernstein broadcasting from the virtual location of thisweekinastrology.com and the physical location of Asheville, North Carolina. We have a long show for you this week. We open, as always, with the forecast for the next seven days, which will be relatively brief. A few brief announcements, and then the, the meat of the show will be a live listener consultation with Eleanor. Uh, we get intricate and technical on her natal grand trine kite and her natal yod. Uh, we spent a great deal of time on that, so those of you who want to learn more about aspect patterns can really benefit from listening to that. And she's got some fascinating transits going on, too. Her natal Jupiter and Saturn are both in the heart of the Grand Cross. Uranus and Pluto are going to be working those two natal planets for quite a while. And she's also got events such as her natal Chiron, which is a prominent planet in her yod, about to receive an exact conjunction from the progressed ascendant. So we'll get into some progressed energy, some strong transits. And those of you who want to learn more about the technical side of astrology will have a field day with this one. It's also a little longer than usual, about 75 minutes. So plenty of time to sink down into the juicy details of what's going on in Eleanor's chart. I hope you enjoy it. So now let's dive into this week's forecast. So what's new this week? Mercury turns retrograde, calling for careful communication and more as it backpedals through Cancer and Gemini. In addition, the Sun invites challenge and change by aspecting four slow planets while Venus makes three significant aspects herself. As far as continuing news, the Moon is still waxing. We still have two retrograde planets, Saturn through July 20th and Pluto through September 22nd. And we have a whole bunch of aspect patterns still in play, including two grand crosses involving Jupiter, Uranus, and Pluto. The other element asteroid goddesses Ceres and Vesta are parts of those grand crosses. We've got a kite with Juno, Jupiter, Chiron, and Saturn. And we've got a couple of T-squares also involving Ceres and Vesta with Uranus and Pluto. And a grand trine still running with Jupiter, Chiron, and Saturn with lots of healing energy available. So we have discussed all of these aspect patterns on prior shows, so I'm not going to go into detail on them just as an overview. So let's get on to our individual days of the week. We have no significant events, not even lunar ones, on Monday, June 2nd. So we're going to zip right along to Tuesday, June 3rd. We open with a void moon that's kicking in at 10.42 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Next up, we have the Sun Quincunx Pluto. The Sun is at 13 degrees Gemini exactly, and Pluto is right at 13 degrees Capricorn. Make adjustments to accommodate transformation, especially in your thinking and communications with the Gemini and Sun Quincunx Pluto. On Wednesday, June 4th, we have Venus sextile Neptune. Venus is at 7.5 Taurus, and Neptune's at 7.5 Pisces. This Venus-Neptune sextile is always good for creative inspiration, relating with the divine and others, and connecting with your own spiritual essence. 
with Venus and Taurus, flowing sensuality, sacred sex, and law of attraction manifestation are also primed. I mentioned we had a Voidicorse moon kicking in yesterday, June 3rd. That resolves as the moon enters Virgo here on Wednesday, June 4th at 10.20 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. As the moon enters Virgo, it's a good time to focus on health, service, and details. And of course, those of you who listen already know that a void moon is a good time to uh, not start major new things or make big purchases if you can avoid them. Also here on Wednesday, June 4th, we have a moon palace Athena conjunction that's happening around 9 a.m. So for a few hours either side of that, the energies of palace Athena will be emphasized a little bit. That means uh, feminine assertiveness, strategic cunning, and practical creativity may be a little more available in the air. On Thursday, June 5th, we have one event to report a quintile at 72 degrees between Venus and Jupiter. Venus is at 9 Taurus, while Jupiter is at 21 Cancer. A magical expansion of your creativity, relating, and or finances is available under this aspect. On Friday, June 6th, we open with another void moon, this one at 5.13 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Next up would be a Sun-Uranus sextile. The Sun is at 16 Gemini, Uranus at 16 Aries. Intuitive flashes may flow fast and free with this aspect. This is a good time to let your freak flag fly and focus on projects requiring mental ingenuity. The void moon that started earlier today at 5.13 a.m. resolves at 10.01 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time as the moon enters Libra. This will give us two and a half days of the energy of relating with others and creative expression. On Saturday, June 7th, the headline you've been waiting for, it's Mercury Retrograde. Mercury turns retrograde here. Again, that is Saturday, June 7th at 7.56 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. It will turn retrograde in Cancer at 3 degrees 10 minutes. It will turn direct again on July 1st at 8.50. That's 8.50 a.m. And it will do that in Gemini at 24 degrees 22 minutes. It's best to launch big projects or make major purchases before or after these dates. Confirm clear comprehension, double-check travel arrangements, and back up critical data. Mercury Retrograde is a great time for reflection, completing projects already underway, and making repairs. While Mercury backpedals in Cancer, June 7th through June 17, reflection on issues relating to family, security, emotional expression, and your worry style is emphasized. With Mercury retrograde in Gemini, June 18 through July 1st, you may find it optimal to scrutinize how you learn and communicate. Next up here on Saturday, June 7th, we have Venus Quincunx Mars. Venus, 11 degrees Taurus, Mars, 11 degrees Libra. Is relationship challenge arising with Venus Quincunx Mars? See what adjustments you can make to deal with the core issue instead of just putting a band-aid on the symptoms. With Venus in sensual Taurus and libidinous Mars in partner-focused Libra, it might also be fun to adjust your lovemaking routine to something new and exciting. Our last event here on Saturday, June 7th, is a Moon-Mars conjunction around 7.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. And wow, libidinous Mars, there he is. Uh, more energy for lovemaking if you want. Or there just may be the energy of 
leadership or pioneering or the warrior spirit. Or if you're not careful, maybe the darker sides of Mars may want to show themselves like through anger and impulsiveness. I always recommend going to the high side if you can. We have a lot going on on Sunday, June 8th, opening with a moon conjunction to the asteroid goddess Vesta. That's around 6.30 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Vesta is about your devotion to a cause beyond your own selfish needs and can also carry an energy of sacred sexuality. Next up is the Sun square Chiron. The Sun is at 18 Gemini. Chiron is at 18 Pisces. And the Sun is also today quincunxing Saturn. The Sun still at 18 Gemini, Saturn at 18 Scorpio. We'll do a combined interpretation. There's some challenge in the air under these two aspects. The likelihood is greater than usual that you might experience some manner of wounding or restriction. This could express itself as some authority trying to lay down the law about how you should think or communicate. On the high side, this energy can be great for refining thoughts and words, as well as mentoring and healing. Next up on the list of many events here on Sunday, the Moon Conjuncts series. And this is happening around 9.45 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. And this is a wonderful time to uh, work with the themes of abundance, self-worth, release and return, mother-daughter relationships, and more. Next up, we have the Void Moon kicking in at 3.47 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. And we end the day with Venus trine Pluto. Venus at 13 Taurus and Pluto at 13 Capricorn. Erotic or sensual indulgence is one way to play Tarian Venus trine Pluto. You can also focus on money matters, easier than usual relationship transformation, and shamanic immersion into nature's living consciousness. I do want to close with one event from next week's show on Monday, June 9th, just so we can wrap up that Void of Course moon I mentioned earlier. The moon will enter Scorpio on Monday, June 9th at 6.39 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time, ending the Void Moon and radiating for another two and a half days the energy of transformation, sensuality, deep dive into research or investigation or detective work and occult practices and more even than that. But we'll tell you more about that on next week's show. This ends the seven days forecast. Looking ahead to the week of June 9th, we have several significant events, including a full moon in Sagittarius. That's a very expansive experience. We have a challenging square between Mars and Pluto. We have Saturn trine Chiron, one of the elements of that wonderful healing grand trine with Saturn, Chiron, and Jupiter coming exact. Got a couple of aspect patterns. We have the peaking of a T-square with Ceres, Uranus, and Pluto. And we have the beginning of a kite with uh, that Jupiter, Chiron, Saturn grand trine for healing and mentoring with Venus at the tip. In addition, Neptune is involved in several aspects and events. It's turning retrograde making a minor aspect to Jupiter and opposing Pallas Athena. And Venus has three events. She's going to sextile Chiron, oppose Saturn, and quintile Neptune. And that's a lot of stuff happening. And you can bet that I will be here next week, as always, to share with you the optimal uses of these astrological energies. I hope you'll join me. You can hear my weekly forecast every week on This Week in Astrology. But would you also like to get a free, concise version in writing? How about having it pop into your inbox every week? How about occasional bonus articles on astrology, healing, spiritual awakening, and more? That's what you'll get with Astro Shaman's free weekly email newsletter. 
To subscribe, go to astroshaman.com. You'll see the newsletter sign-up form near the top of the sidebar. And if you like to calculate your own astrology charts, why not use the world's leading Windows astrology software and get it for the lowest price available? Astroshaman is an authorized dealer for Solar Fire Gold, which can also run on your Mac. To learn more or place your order, visit astroshaman.com. From there, click on Products in the menu bar and choose Solar Fire Software from the drop-down menu. A free weekly forecast newsletter and the best available price on Solar Fire Gold. Two great reasons to visit astroshaman.com right now. Today's announcement section is brief compared to most. I want to first thank the people who have sent new charts in in recent weeks, including Vicky, Rebecca, Sabrina, Kim, and Leanna. Um, they must have known that we're going to do a free drawing on the June 16th show. That's just in two weeks. And that will be your chance to win a free one-hour session with me. So if you have not already, any time in the past, sent in your birth data, please do so to info at astroshaman.com and listen to the June 16th show to see if you won. Uh, all you have to do is send me, of course, your name, as well as the date, time, and city of birth. We're running low on questions for our live listener consultation segments. So if you have a personal question that you would like me to answer with you in consultation and have it broadcast on the show, then please send that also to info at astroshaman.com. If possible, I really prefer questions that are not just about astrology technically, but also relate to an actual situation that's occurring in your life. No problem if you're also referencing a particular astrological aspect, but I found the best consultations are the ones that you're kind of just asking the question in plain English, and then we use the astrology to help answer it. So again, email your personal questions you'd like me to address on the show with you in consultation to info at astroshaman.com. Information on everything that follows from here is in the What's New section of the homepage of astroshaman.com. Except for the following. <laughs> I am, of course, doing a weekly YouTube video forecast, which is the same material as part one of the show, just re-recorded and a little bit of extra data. And, of course, you can see me. Uh, as we do just about every Tuesday, I'm doing my Shamanic Invocation Heal and Awaken meetup on June 3rd. If you can't make it in person in Asheville, North Carolina, you can dial in by phone and join us on the live conference call. I keep getting feedback from people saying it's a very powerful and positive experience of healing and awakening. And uh, I actually just use the old name for this. I need to correct this in my notes. We've renamed it just Shamanic Awakening. So that's all of our announcements. Our live listener consultation will be up right after this music break.
That was the beginning of Diamonds from Dust by harpist Amy Shreve. She spells her last name S-H-R-E-V-E. And that entire album, Peace in the Puzzle, that's P-E-A-C-E in the Puzzle, is really extraordinary. Welcome to our live listener consultation. This week, I'm pleased to have on the show Eleanor. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining me on This Week in Astrology. Thanks for having me. And uh, let me confirm that I have your chart data correct. I show you're born September 22, 1981 at 7 p.m. in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Is that correct? 6.58 p.m. Is that different enough? Well, it. Uh, I checked that. I noticed when I was looking through your emails that I had two different versions of the birth time. Uh, now, again, a, a this is a good topic to bring up, actually, for our listeners. Um, it's a two-minute difference. And on average, the ascendant moves one degree every four minutes. So normally, that's, that's nominal. But in this case, we have got, um, we have a very, your angles are at like 29 degrees and change. So if they were moving in a certain direction, it might make a difference. Um, so in this case, if I, as I show a 7 p.m. chart, I have Pisces rising at 29 degrees, 30 minutes. Um, but actually what's happened is at, at 6.58 p.m., we'd be even a little further back in Pisces, maybe around 29 degrees uh, regular. So if anything, moving it slightly earlier would would make your angles a little more securely in the signs they're actually in. Because your midheaven, for example, is 29 degrees, 43 minutes Sagittarius. In the porphyry house system that I use, all of your house cusps are 29 degrees and change. So moving it back to 658 would actually make your angles a little bit more securely in their respective signs and make them a tiny bit less cuspy. So the bottom line is, you know, with things moving about a half a degree, and in our case, since it would move them a little more securely into their signs, a two-minute difference in birth time is going to make no difference in the way I'm interpreting anything. And in terms of my margin of error, since it's moving the angles perhaps half a degree, um, it's not going to make any real difference in the timing of things like slow planets coming to angles or anything like that. I mean, it's a, it would make a tiny bit of difference, but uh, at least the way I do astrology, a two-minute difference is, is basically not important. Does that help answer that question? Yep, that's fine. Okay, good. So, so for the record, I am I still have the printed chart at seven p.m., um, but we'll we'll run. You know, as I said, it really doesn't make any difference. I don't recall. I don't think we're going to be talking about anything coming to an angle anyway. So it's a that's a moot point on where the angles lie, as long as we know the signs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so and I've seen my chart at six fifty eight too, and it, and the angles are are so close. You're right. Yeah, they're still at twenty nine. Just, um, maybe yeah. A few yeah. Although, just to complete our little discussion on cuspy angles, um, it's worth noting, at least in my opinion, that you should take both signs into account when you're really close, like within a degree or two. And if you're at 29 and change, yes, you do have Pisces rising for sure, but you've also got Aries starting half a degree into the first house and covering the rest of the house. So, you know. Mm. We, we, I think, would have to say, well, when we interpret your ascendant, yeah, it's Pisces, but maybe we should test Aries rising, too, and see if that also seems to make sense based on how your life is actually working. Because in cuspy, whether it's cuspy planets or cuspy sign cusps, or house cusps, I mean, you know, I've learned that, you know, both energies might be there overlapping a bit. I hope that makes sense. 
Okay, so maybe it adds a little extra possible depth to how you might interpret yourself. Um, I see. So anyhow, so we'll uh, hopefully that will be a sufficient discussion. And and listeners, this is probably a good way to start because we've just gotten really technical. And um, um, Eleanor, your questions are also pretty technical. So uh, to paraphrase Olivia Newton-John, this segment is about let's get technical, technical. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so what what topic would you like to address on the show today, here, Eleanor? Um, well, I've been studying astrology for a few years now, and I'm able to identify various aspect patterns in my chart. Uh huh. And I'd love some help understanding those more deeply. Okay. Absolutely. Um, and then I I've been looking at my progress chart too, and noticing a few interesting progressions okay and we'll get into those too so we'll have a uh, a, uh, a series of things we'll look at and hopefully those of you who want to learn more about aspect patterns natally and how to work with progressions secondary progressions and not just transits this will be a, a juicy show of learning for you guys okay so let's dive in i do have the emails that we've been working with and um you talked about your aspect patterns i'm going to go to that part now uh, looks like the first one you asked about was your water grand trine with a kite. So um, let me just for folks give them the basic primal triad of your chart, just so they have some perspective on you. You've got uh, a cuspy sun. It's at 29 degrees, 49 minutes Virgo, um, which, again, according to what I just said, means, yeah, it's a Virgo sun, but there's a lot of Libra on it, too. So it's a mixed energy sun. Um, the moon is... Uh, is late Cancer, 27 degrees, 6 minutes. I'd say that's a pretty solidly Cancer moon. There's not much Leo when it's still 3 degrees out from the next sign. And the Ascendant, as I've already talked about, is very late Pisces, uh, 29 degrees and change, um, with uh, areas close behind and covering most of the first house. So you asked about a water grand trine, which I did find when I did the chart study. And this water grand trine, the three corners, and, and for those who don't already know, a grand trine is an equilateral triangle, just, you know, a, a triangle with three equal sides. And one corner is the ascendant itself uh, at about 29 degrees. The moon is another corner. Along with the north node, you have a, a tight little moon-north node conjunction. They're about, um, about a degree and a quarter off conjunction. The moon's at 27 degrees, 6 minutes cancer. The north node is 28 degrees, 28 minutes cancer. So that's another corner with those two guys. The third corner is occupied solely by Uranus. So we have Ascendant, Moon, North Node, Uranus, creating that uh, that Grand Trine. And as you pointed out, it's not just a Grand Trine. It's a kite. Okay? Um, and for those who don't know, a kite is a Grand Trine with another point equidistant between two of the corners. So instead of just 120-degree trines, we have, in addition, 60-degree sextiles from from two of the corners up to a third point, and it makes it look like an old-fashioned kite, um, like people used to fly, and may still. I'm really not keeping up with kite flying these days. So um, I don't know if you knew, uh, Eleanor, but you have two kite points on that Grand Trine. Did you know there was two kite points on that thing? No, I'm only thinking of my son. Right. And uh, it's not just your son. Um, Again, with your son so tightly hugging the descendant, the kite point between Uranus and Moon North Node is the Sun. And since I and now use a five-degree orb for sextiles, 
I also have the not just the descendant the sun's real close to, but Ceres, the asteroid goddess, is also nudging up against the sun. The Ceres is only about, um, gosh, about four degrees off the sun, and I'm considering it a member of the kite point. So there's one kite point, and yet we have another. Um, the south node of the moon is uh, pretty closely set up between the ascendant and Uranus. So you're just one point shy of a grand sextile. <laughs> Which would, be, uh, which would be 60-degree aspects all the way around the circle. So um, let's take it one piece at a time. That was a lot of astrologies, and hopefully if you're still listening, you're ready to dive into this. <laughs> um, so let's just do the grand trine for starters, and then we'll, we'll add piece by piece all the other components. So grand trine, ascendant, moon, Uranus north node on the corners. So the, what we know about a grand trine is that it's a, things that connect easily. A trine itself, just that 120 degree between two planets, says these things just sort of connect without even trying. They may be so connected you don't even know they're connecting. It may be it's the old metaphor about a, a fish doesn't know it's in water because it's been there its whole life. It's just taken as granted. And um, that's how these things can operate. So... Let's just take the moon, Uranus, and ascendant for starters, and we'll add the north node in um, as we move forward. So let's start, actually, let's start with the ascendant, because in my way of thinking, um, I can see angles receiving energy, but I have a hard time envisioning angles sending energy. So when you're interpreting a multi-planet setup, like an aspect pattern, the way I like to think of them initially, at least, is the slower guys sending energy to the quicker guys. And and beyond that, the physical points sending energy to the virtual points. Uh, does that make sense, Eleanor? So in the case of the grand water time, Uranus would be sort of feeding the ascendant and moon? Exactly. And, and the north node as well. So that is exactly how I see it. So let's, but again, that's a theory, and let's see if it actually bears weight. The great thing about doing live listener consultations with folks on the phone is that we can test the theories and see if they actually play out, Okay. So, so let's take it one piece at a time. Let's just start with Uranus trying the Ascendant. We'll, we'll just break it down into its smallest component pieces, the actual trines. So we have to first understand the Ascendant all by itself to understand what's being affected. So as we said, now we get to test my theory that Aries is an energy on your Ascendant that shows itself. So um, let, me, let me test the rising. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you just plain English definitions of Pisces rising and Aries rising and have you tell me which one seems more true to you. Uh, not based on your own perception, but based on how others perceive you. Because the thing about the ascendant is it's not how you perceive yourself. It's how others get that first impression of you, which may be quite different from how you perceive yourself. Is that understand? Did I explain that clearly? Okay. So a Pisces rising person... They might be perceived as changeable. Uh, if someone knows you over time, they may see you go through a lot of different um, uh, personalities. Um, they might perceive you as very sensitive, that you're really keenly aware of the energies around you. Uh, might see you, if, if you're working this on the high side, they might perceive you as very compassionate and unconditionally loving. Um, if, um, if it's not being worked on the high side, you might be perceived as really addictive and trying to escape all the time or falling into the victim role or being sort of aimless and drifty. Um, and you might also be perceived, again, if you're working it more on the high side, as people may just love being around you because your energy feels so good. And that would be the, the porousness of the Pisces Ascendant and your own 
divine energy that you naturally embody just flowing out and kind of blessing everything around you. So that's a lot of, of description, but that's one, that's column A, Pisces rising. The column B for Aries rising would be very different. Uh, you would be perceived as uh, strongly assertive, not afraid to get out and go after what you want. Um, you might, on the dark side, be perceived as violent or obnoxious or overbearing in some way, dominating. Um, on the high side, you might be perceived as really fighting for worthy causes and being a wonderful leader. Um, there might be a significant amount of sexual energy that's perceived when people first meet you. Um, and uh, in the, actually, believe it or not, even though adjacent signs are often very, very different, they actually have something in common here because Pisces keeps evolving and shifting into different things. It's the shapeshifter and the chameleon. Uh, one one writer called it the face dancer. But Aries, and that means a constantly or a a changing persona, not just, I mean, Pisces is the sign of the actor, right? Uh, but Aries is, I want to start something new. So in both cases, whether it's Pisces or Aries rising, what I would expect over time is that that persona would keep changing. So that's what they have in common for different reasons. Does that make sense, Eleanor? Okay, now I've, I've certainly spoken at length on both energies. Hopefully you held all that in your mind. So which which rising feels more authentic to you, the Pisces rising or the Aries rising? Is it possible to be both? Well, I, that's actually what I would expect. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was I think a I relate to both, yeah. Okay, so you have the ability to be both receptive and assertive. Um, you can really be empathic with people, but you can always take charge if you need to and, and get things done. Is all that true about yeah, you? Yeah, and especially... When I'm in new scenarios, I there is a way that I can shape shift um, very in a very Piscean way, and it's not that I'm not being myself. It's just that I'm so receptive to the energy around me that I I access different parts of myself to to be in harmony with with my environment. Well said. Yeah, and my own perception of reality now is that the only thing that's fundamentally you about you is pure divine awareness, which has no attributes whatsoever. <laughs> and Pisces is great for that. It's the ocean, right? Yeah, and the ocean can form itself into icebergs or waves or a calm, still flat sea or whatever it needs to be. So um, there's nothing inherently fixed in my mind about you know being a human because it's all changing down here in the physical world anyway. But anyhow, that's that's a little beyond the scope of what we're actually wanting to get into here. Now, for our purposes, uh, I don't want to get too heavily into the ruler or rulers in this case, of the Ascendant, which we're going to just stick with Pisces for that. Um, you've got Jupiter and Neptune, the ancient and modern rulers. Um, I'm just trying to feel if, if I can just broadly generalize. Okay, I'll, I'll do just a little bit on the uh, signs and houses, um, since they're the same meaning. Y your chart is, is very, is like a degree or so off of being a natural chart, because I believe everything in your houses is with almost, well, I think I think I say one exception, um, is in the sign that naturally rules that house. The only exception is your son, which is very late Virgo, just tipping up into the seventh house. But everything else, like all your seventh house planets otherwise are in Libra, all your eighth house planets are Scorpio, etc. So everywhere around the whole chart, the planets are in the natural sign that relates to that house. Does that make sense, uh, Eleanor? Yeah. Yeah, it's one less level of, of depth we have to go to in the interpretation because the the sign and house placements are going to be saying the same thing. 
with the single exception of the sun. Okay, and and the, what the concept I just used for listeners who may not be getting it yet is the astrology alphabet, which says there's a sign planet and house that all mean exactly pretty much the same thing, not not exactly precisely in all cases, but most of the time. So in 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 the seventh house case, if it's relating to the seventh house or the sign of Libra or the planet Venus, those are all different ways to get to the same archetypal energy. And that's true for all 12 of them. Okay, so let's then um, look at the fact that Jupiter is a Libra seventh house planet, the ancient ruler of your ascendant, which says that um, people might perceive you as, as very easy to relate with because that's the energy of Libra, you know, harmonious, balanced, um, is it true that when you choose to be, you can be quite diplomatic and comfortable and easy with people, a good socializer? Yeah, especially one-on-one. Yeah, okay. So that's that's the ruler of the Ascendant, 7th house Libra. And the other as- ruler of the Ascendant, Neptune, the modern ruler, is ninth house Sagittarius. So that might indicate that another energy people might perceive about you is expansive, joyous, loves to have a good time, um, might seem a bit larger than life sometimes. Um, you might have the ability to put on a sunny face, even if you're not feeling 100% great inside. Um, and also, there might be a strong energy of the entertainer, because Sagittarius is like the sign of the big belly laugh. So does any of that description fit you when you choose to project that kind of energy? Somewhat, yeah. Okay. So, again, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's operating 100% of the time, but that energy is easily available to you when it wants to manifest. Is that true? I and guess it, I think of it more of a fifth, fifth house thing. Okay. I had never thought of the Neptune in that house in Sagittarius because it's there for so long, right? It's a, being a slow planet. Well, again, I'm just talking the natal chart. So these are, these are permanent lifetime placements. Yeah. So now just to clarify what you're saying, you're talk you're referring to your Mars and Leo in the 5th, right? And and Yeah, and I think in and in some house systems my moon and north node are also in the 5th house. Yeah. And and I would I would count them energetically in the 5th because they're in Porphyry, the moon is only about 2 and a half degrees off the cusp and the north node is only about 1 degree off the cusp and if they're within 5 degrees according to the widely used 5 degree rule, if a planet's within five degrees of the next house cusp, it's really leaning in. So that moon is at least as much in my interpretation of fifth house moon as a uh, as a fourth. But to me, that's slightly tangential to the point I'm making, which is about you being perceived as the jovial entertainer, which a Cancer moon is not really going to contribute to very much. <laughs> that's a different kind of I think over energy. time, like once people get through the Pisces ascendant more who I am, I, uh-huh. when I can feel more comfortable, then well, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty silly okay good all right um but actually what i'm describing is the the energies that would be apparent immediately like you know oh right because it's my rising energy yeah yeah i agree yeah no not i don't even say that right away i'm that i'm like that right away but so you um, but you, i don't always know that i'm being perceived <laughs> in certain ways you know it's a so it's a slippery subject isn't it um but what I would would I would speculate since one of the and again, Sagittarius doesn't always manifest as humor. 
you know, Sagittarius is also the sign of the the dead serious religious fanatic. So it can it can take different flavors. Uh, I'm not implying you're that, but I'm just pointing out a, a radical difference in the jovial jokester, right? Um, but you know, one possibility is you know that you could be perceived as entertaining and expansive and larger than life, you know, in situations, and people might at in certain times get that first impression from you. Okay, so I think we've we've belabored the ascendant sufficiently. So yeah. So let's now get back to the grand trine of which it is a part. Um, and that is part of how I do astrology, which is we, we take the general idea, we're working the grand trine, we zoom in to the ascendant and, and go a little deeper on interpreting it. Now we're zooming back out to, to relate back to the aspect pattern, and it's helpful to be able to zoom in and out that way when you do astrology. So in addition to all the things I've already said about the ascendant with Uranus trine, uh, we would expect that you would be perceived as unusual. And the phrase I often use with Uranus aspecting the ascendant or its ruler, I say, and that means no matter how you try, you just can't pass for normal. <laughs> so um, even from your childhood, was it always hard for you to be just one of the girls? Did, was there always something that made you distinctive and different than the rest? Yeah, totally. Okay. I so, would call it unique or something. <laughs> um, but... It, it being where I was from, I seemed very quite different. Uh huh. People appreciated it mostly, I think, but mm. I fit in a lot better out west here on Vancouver Island. I would say. Okay. All right. Good. But uh, even in Vancouver Island, is there? Do people still perceive something distinctive about you? You're not just that ordinary person, but there's something they noted about you that is distinctive and different and, and notable? Yes, yes, for sure. Okay, there, good. And there are lots of unique people here, so it's uh -huh. kind of, it, it works well. <laughs> right. It reminds me of what I said about myself when I moved from Oklahoma, where I lived for 41 years, to Asheville, North Carolina. And I said in Oklahoma, I was the weirdo. When I got to Asheville, I had to weird up just to be normal. <laughs> there you go, totally. I kind of seemed kind of reserved and stuff and, and normal coming out here, but yeah. Okay, good. So so that's um, a level of Uranus trying the Ascendant, just a very basic idea of you're, you feel different than other people. Um, so let's just leave that for now. And um, although I want to bring out another possible way that might work, uh, a, a high side expression of Uranus, since it relates to the energy of Aquarius, naturally, um, is humanitarian service. And and the reason I hesitate a second, because not everyone manifests this, but I'm just curious, when people first meet you, do they get that sense that you're not just looking out for number one, but are wanting to be of service to some higher cause that's important to you? Yeah, totally. I'm, I've been doing humanitarian or service, more service-oriented work always, like, it's always, always part of my nature. So. Okay. And that's something that people might notice about you at a first meeting or it might come up in conversation. Yeah. Okay, good. I also sometimes, and I never know what to use, but my true north node is that is in, your, is in Aquarius. True, south node, sorry. My true south node is uh -huh. Aquarius, zero degrees, and north node Leo, uh -huh. zero degrees. Right. So I'm all, I always kind of thought it was that, but I... Mm -hmm. I get that I, I fall in different houses and signs when when we use the mean nodes. 
Yeah. Sorry for the complicated. Oh no, no, it's not. So, so just to to make clear to anyone who didn't totally follow what Eleanor said just then, um, there are two main ways of calculating the lunar nodes, the nodes of the moon, and the one I use is the mean node, which places her nodes at about twenty-eight and a half degrees of Cancer and Capricorn. But what she's saying is, when a true node calculation is used, it moves um probably about two degrees further on, which puts them into the very beginning of Aquarius. Okay. And again, I would acknowledge they both probably have value. And once again, even with nodes at 28 and a half of, of their signs, I would be saying, you know, there's a little bit of the next signs energy there also. And again, we can do the, you know, when we did the ascendant test, we did Pisces and Aries, both you said, oh gosh, it sounds like both of them. My guess is uh, when we get to doing the same with the nodes that we'll also discover, wow, both uh, both those signs actually have relevance here. It's That's a, right. I've done those tests on myself, and I, I definitely feel like I relate to both. Yeah. So you, you've got a complex little chart here, Eleanor. <laughs> or perhaps I should just say multifaceted. Cuspy. <laughs> Cuspy, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I have a very good friend whose who's cusps are also all 29 degrees and change in porphyry, and he is one of the most interesting people I know. So... Maybe uh, a super cuspy chart is, is, well, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Because if every house is sharing two signs, energies, then that ends a, adds a great deal of depth and interest to the whole, the whole life area, doesn't it? And especially... And, well, I guess because so many signs and cusps are related, are, are at this late degree, then whatever aspects one of them ends up aspecting them all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true as well. Um, although, honestly, in my own work, I tend to, you know, be very conscious of aspects to the angles, but I, I rarely pay much attention to aspects to other house cusps. And perhaps that's a failing on my part, but I've never noticed that I was missing truly, you know, critical information by paying less attention to aspects to other house cusps. So it's all part of, you know, when you become a professional astrologer, you're doing triage all the time. You could spend 10 hours interpreting every chart if you went super deep and you just have to make decisions along the way. I'm, I'm going to use this and not use that in a general way. Um, totally. and, and not making aspects to interior house cusps is one of those decisions I made along the way. We'll return with more of our live listener consultation. How much valuable astrological information can you get for just $15? Far more than you might expect, thanks to the Time Passages Natal Report. This is by far the best natal computer report I've ever seen. It provides an extraordinary depth of interpretation with a consistently positive tone. A computer report can never replace a human astrologer, but the Time Passages Natal Report will provide you with a wealth of insights into your natal chart. It can also serve as a great introduction to astrology or help anyone understand themselves better. I was amazed at how much I learned about myself from its insightful interpretations. The Time Passages Natal Report also makes a unique and affordable gift for all occasions. To learn more or place your order, visit astroshaman.com. From there, click on Products in the menu bar and choose Computer Reports from the drop-down menu. Satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. How much valuable astrological information can you get for just $15? Order your risk-free Time Passages Natal Report and find out. So, back to our grand trine. We'll continually bounce back between our main point and our tangents, because astrology always runs in circles. <laughs> so we've got Uranus trying the Ascendant. Let's, let's talk about the Moon trining the Ascendant. 
So this adds an element we don't have yet. Again, it's a moon in Cancer, and that's a strong emotional nature. So this suggests that when people first meet you, they might uh, feel strong emotions coming from you, and they might see that you have strong feelings about things. Um, do you feel that's true, that people feel a strong emotional resonance about things when they meet you? Or that they perceive that you emote strongly? Um, yeah, like I'm a, I'm an, I can, I'm not afraid to feel emotional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To be expressive and, um, but they don't tend to be, um, they tend to be, <laughs> they're, they're not like, um, mean emotions or anything to oh, no. directed at others. No, I wasn't implying that at all. Just you might be really happy or really joyful or, you know, really, uh, you know, I don't know, Very whatever. Sad. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. Or, yeah. yeah. And I'll just I, make a note. When I analyzed your modes and elements, you are your uh, your water element is significantly stronger than any of the others. And your strongest modality is mutability. So mutable water, um, which is the energy of Pisces, um, when you when you nail it down, means that, you know, you're you're going to be strongly emotive and the, the emotions will constantly change. So um, one, one phrase we could use for you, Eleanor, is more moods per minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why I, I try to take care to do things that help me stay balanced because it is very easy for me to be <laughs> up and down otherwise. Right, I totally get you. Okay, so we've confirmed that Moon Trine Ascendant is a sense of uh, strong emotional energy being felt even by those who are first meeting you. So that, that feels correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so now let's combine Uranus moon going to the ascendant. Um, this uh, Uranus is the, the planet in this context of sudden change. Um, so ways that this could color the ascendant is uh, I feel strongly about things, the moon, and these emotions change a lot. And perhaps my emotional response might seem unusual to you. There's Uranus again coloring the moon in some contexts. Um, there could also be, you know, as we combine them in different ways, maybe you're really passionate about being different and doing humanitarian service. And the humanitarian service you do is filled with excitement and passion. Um, does this all feel like energies yep. that people might perceive from you? Okay, so those are just a couple of three different ways of throwing that all together. Now, I think we're ready to add the North Node of the Moon into the Grand Trine. And again, my own bias is I, I see that receiving energy, not sending it. Um, so right away, to have the, the North Node in the, again, with mean node calculation in Cancer and the Moon conjunct it, that's a, a very strong signal to me that part of what you came here to learn in this life is how to be comfortable with strong emotions. And even if you want to now <laughs> put the North Node in Leo, which we would do with a True Node, right? It's early Leo under True Node, the North Node, mm -hmm. right? Then that just makes it more dramatic. <laughs> You've still got a, a Cancer Moon conjunct the Node, so either way you play it, you know, a True Node would give a, an even more dramatic description. I mean, that could potentially be veering into Drama Queen territory if you're not careful. So. Um, but uh, with the North Node in Cancer, well, let's not hear about the the antivirus there. Sorry about that. Um, with the Moon 
you know, conjunct the North. It says it's your destiny to be comfortable with everything represented by the moon in Cancer, your emotional nature. Um, it's important to spend an appropriate amount of time in your domestic scenario, at home, with family, whether that's your birth family or your family of choice. Um, you know, those, and, and Cancer is about security as well. The crab has that big old, you know, shell over itself to protect itself, right? Um, so I would think those themes would be themes that would be important for you to really, you know, get comfortable with and master in the course of this lifetime. Does that make sense to you, uh, Eleanor? Yep. Yes. Okay. All right. Good. So, um, now let's take Uranus aspect in the North Node. Um, part of the destiny then is to get really comfortable with the energy of Uranus. So it's saying, um, again, the high side ways I think of Uranus is a be comfortable with your uniqueness and differentness. Sounds like you're you've done that already. True. Well, yes, and it's a work in progress for sure. Okay. Being more accepting of that. Right now, another meaning I haven't brought out yet because it didn't seem to really relate on the ascendant so much is intuitive flashes, because that's how Uranus communicates. It's one of those outer planets that is more directly wired into divine transpersonal energy. So it's saying, I would interpret this as part of your destiny is with the trine to easily receive intuitive flashes that that absolutely sure guidance from within yourself and to act on it. Um, are you, how are you coming on that score? Um, I would say pretty good. Okay. <laughs> I, um, I feel like I download information quickly and what choices to make very yeah very intuitively quickly good and, and is there is there still much ego resistance to following that guidance when it comes in i would say the one area of my life that i find difficult with that is in relationships mm. which, um especially intimate relationships and i and that probably has to do with my loaded seventh house but i would say so um, <laughs> but, but but otherwise yeah i feel good about i feel i'm feel strongly like i really i believe in my ability to be intuitively led in my creativity and work and family etc okay and just to reality check the relationship side of that has your intuitive guidance ever in your opinion led you wrong in terms of what yes. it was guiding you to do in terms of a relationship so your, now, your intuition led thing, you wrong? Though, it's discerning where is the um, intuition, uh-huh. right? And it's gotten all, because, I don't know, it's, maybe it's the, the emotional nature I have, strongly emotional nature. One uh-huh. day I'll feel like it's leading me one way, and the next day it's leading me another way. Uh, that doesn't sound like intuition to me. <laughs> let me let me give my definition of intuition and see if this helps clarify because this is a good point I've, I've this point's come up with a lot of clients um the there's a difference in this context between a feeling and an emotion a lot of people use those as synonyms but in this context an emotion is could be sad happy joyful you know depressed you know those are just emotions running around but a a feeling the way I, in this context, used in this technical way, means the the calm certainty of how the divine is communicating with you. So the way I would elaborate into that around what's an intuition and what's not is 
when the instant a thought arises, you absolutely know that it is true without any doubt and for no good reason because it's not a logical knowing it's true. It just You just know it in your gut, right? And, and at the moment of the thought's inception, when you have that, that magical feeling of certainty about it, and often it's accompanied by uh, you know, goose pimples or, or electricity up your spine, there's some significant somatic response a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, those are what I'm calling the intuitive flashes. Yeah, that's true. No, they don't fail me. It's true, they don't. It, it just confuses, it has confused me in the past because sometimes that Uranian energy is having me, is, I'm, in, I'm intuiting decisions which don't seem to fit into conventions. Well, that happens all the time. <laughs> and like, I, I intuit that I need to go, like, for example, in my long-term relationship, we have decided to break up, like, four times uh-huh. and gotten back together hmm. as well. So one could say, okay, you're, you know, those were not, you, you're not following your intuition, you're not following through, but I feel like every time we've gotten back together, it's been a different, we're, we're moving into a new phase. And so I've, I was both, I both intuited to, to separate and intuited to come back together. Okay. And what you, what I hear you saying is that, you, you know, the fact that you broke up and came back together shifted the energy of the relationship in a different way, and now new new things are being done in the context of that relationship in terms of your growth and learning, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, in that context, really, those could both be right. I actually had a very powerful experience in, in a recent strong shamanic journey that I did and um, was told I had to release my partner, Kimberly. And, you know... That surprised me because I've done lots of these journeys and have never gotten that message before. And I said, okay. And I released her. And then at the end of the release process, when I had truly released, you know, her uh, energetically from my life, the intuition came in and said, okay, you can stay with her, but it has to be new. In other words, what, what I had to release was the way that we were together before. And all of the change had to be, you know, I can't change her. The change was me. I had to change aspects of how I was relating to her and my willingness to surrender to what I perceived as my own divine guidance and my willingness to let her go. Then, as you described, it put our relationship into a new level and a new level of learning started happening. So it, it was like a yeah, reset. Exactly. Button. It's yeah. that death rebirth process. It renews, it can renew our relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so in my opinion, both the intuition to break up and the intuition to get back together could both have been correct because it shifted the dynamic of the relationship so it could take it all to the next level for both of you. Does that make sense? Yes, I believe that too. Yeah, so that, that would, that's a possible interpretation. And since it just happened to me too, you know, I've, I've had personal experience exactly with that just very recently. So, uh, very cool. Okay, so back from that tangent, back to the Grand Trine. <laughs> bouncy, bouncy. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> um, so the intuitive flash to the North Node was what got us on that tangent. And we've already talked about how you are doing the high of Uranus and, you know, as part of your life path. So those are the three ways I would initially think of a high side you know, Uranian expression into the North Node by trying. It's like, you know, be the unique, one-of-a-kind personality that you're here to be. Follow your intuitive flashes. 
and um, be of service. And all, all of this feels like a part of like why you were born. The North Node is the destiny point. It's saying this is a really important area to focus on. You know, it's a big reason why you are in this lifetime to master the themes related to where the North Node is placed. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. All right. So, um, so I think we've actually pretty well completed our, our grand trine interpretation. Um, to put a quick summary on it, we've got a flowing aspect. And, and one thing I didn't mention about grand trines that's important is they can be lazy. <laughs> Because the nature of a trine is to connect easily and automatically. It doesn't require any effort, and it's easy to take it for granted. And so a lot of the attributes we've been discussing around this grand trine might be things that just kind of take care of themselves. Okay, Um, But you can also, as my mentor Kelly Phipps said, you can mine your trines and take the things that are easy to start with and develop them and make them really great strengths. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So I would say, you know... Being comfortable with your emotions, putting appropriate energy into domestic affairs and affairs around security, um, always being open to your intuitive flashes that might cause shifts in any of that, um, and being free to express into the world all the things relating to the ascendant and its its grand trine aspects. You know, being willing to have the 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 image you present to the world always open to change, uh, being porous and feeling the energies of the world yet hopefully being you know full enough of divine light that you radiate that light and love automatically uh with aries there around the the cusp of the first you know having appropriate assertiveness uh projecting sexual energy when it's appropriate uh having that a leader skill um fighting for a worthy cause when it feels appropriate um so and and again with uranus trying the ascendant being willing to be perceived as rather unique and unusual um, and with the moon trine, the ascendant, you know, not being worried that people are going to perceive the strength of your emotional nature. So that's a that's not a complete recap, but it's like some of the highlights of the grand trine discussion. Does that make sense, uh, Eleanor? Yeah. Okay. All right. So, but as we said, it's not just a grand trine; it's a grand trine kite. <laughs> so, so let's add in the uh, the sun, which is undoubtedly the most important additional member of the kite. Um, and there's the sun, you know, very close within probably a degree of the descendant. I'm guesstimating because my chart's two, two, two minutes off exact. But the sun's strongly opposing the ascendant, any way you look at it. And um, this could be your personality shining through quite strongly. Um, so people might see the core of you and not just the surface impression the ascendant gets, but the sun, which is the core of you, shining through quite powerfully. Um, and are you normally comfortable when you first meet someone letting them see that core essence of you? Um, I've learned to be more and more. Okay, so. good. But I like, thanks for that interpretation. Um, I usually, sometimes I think of it being oppositional. Well, uh, that, I'm glad you said that because I was about to talk about, you know, opposition aspect in that context. Um, opposition, which is just 180 degrees apart exactly across the circle from each other, is classified as a hard aspect in astrology, which usually implies challenge. Um, but in my experience, it does not have to be a hard aspect. Um, the fundamental meaning of an opposition is just we're in relationship with each other. And if you and I right now, Eleanor, were in a food room right across from each other, facing and talking, you drew a circle around us, we'd be in an astrological opposition, wouldn't we? 
and yet we're having a friendly and conflict-free discussion. So that illustration shows that an, op an opposition doesn't have to mean conflict. It just means these two things are wanting to relate to each other. If they're coming from opposite points, they're probably in the opposite signs, and these signs do have different tendencies. But there is also a middle ground where they can harmoniously blend. They are what are called complementary opposites, not fighting opposites, right? So that, that's kind of what that's saying. And with your son, mostly Libra, again, 29 degrees, 49 minutes. I'm sorry, I said the wrong word. My apologies. Uh, with your son, 29 degrees, 49 minutes, Virgo, my guess is that one of the energies that might come across when people first meet you due to the son's opposition to the ascendant is a sense of wanting to help out, being of service. Um, is that true? Yeah. And is there a certain level of humility there as well? Not wanting to just stick yourself in their face, but... You know, having an appropriate, you know, sense of, well, where is it appropriate to insert my energy and where should I just lay back and kind of feel the vibe kind of energy? I would say with most of most people, I think the one exception that I've needed to learn about would be my intimate partner. Yeah, but that's <laughs> but, get... right. But that's not an ascendant relationship because you are once you know them well, they right. become a seventh house relationship. So that's right. So that wouldn't I apply. Think people think I, I have good boundaries, like ability to help without being overbearing or, you know, um, yeah. Okay, that's lovely. Okay, so uh, we spent a good juicy amount of time interpreting this grand trine, with the corners being the ascendant, Uranus, moon, north node, and then the kite point of the sun. Do you feel that's sufficient time on the, this grand trine, Eleanor? Okay, and I know some, some people have said, my God, you spent over half an hour on a grand trine? Good Lord. But um, there were significant transits, and, and what I'm modeling for the listeners here who, who either are or want to be astrologers, I assume that you, if you're listening to this segment, there's that desire in there somewhere, is, is one to demonstrate how much data can be gathered from even such a simple-seeming aspect pattern when you look at the various combinations and creative possibilities. So... Um, you know, I, I normally wouldn't go, you know, I can't even remember if I've ever gone that deep on a grand trine with a client because normally as an astrologer, you stick to the more challenging things because, like I said, grand trines usually take care of themselves and they're usually not creating conflict or challenge for the client. So we normally spend our time talking about more difficult things. So, but in terms of being a helpful educational piece, I'm hopeful that this grand trine interpretation we just did for you will help listeners know a little bit more about those. So, um, we, let's let's go to the next aspect pattern, Natalie, uh, Eleanor. Which one would you like to look at? How about the yod? Yod it is. One finger of God coming up. <laughs> <laughs> and in your chart, we have three slower planets forming this yod. So actually, there's going to be a lot of people who have this yod. Again, you're born in September of 1981. So this yod would have been active, gosh, Realistically, this, this yod might have been appearing and disappearing over the course of a couple of years. So if you're born anywhere within a couple of years of 1981, I mean, I haven't run the transit chart. I mean, the, the, I haven't shifted your natal chart to see when this came into orb. But if you're born between 79 and 83, you might have this. So you might check to see if Chiron is the tip of a yod with Neptune and Pluto on the back end. And just to be specific, Chiron is in Taurus, Neptune's in Sagittarius, and Pluto's in Libra at this point. So um, let's first talk, again, I like to work, you know, start simple and add layers. 
So let's talk what a yacht is in the first place. Okay, it, uh, technically it's a it's a very thin pointy triangle, and two of the aspects are quincunxes, which are aspects of 150 degrees. Some people call that an inconjunct, but an inconjunct can actually also apply to a semi-sextile of 30 degrees. So to be precise, I prefer to call that 150-degree aspect a uh, quincunx, Q-U-I-N-C-U-N-X, one of the weirdest-looking words I've ever seen, actually. And on the back end of it is a sextile. So 150 plus 150 plus 60 is uh, 360 degrees. So um, on the back end is what's called the 100-year sextile. Did you know, Eleanor, that that sextile between Pluto and Neptune lasts about 100 years? Yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. From the time Pluto and Neptune conjunct each other to the time they come back to conjunction is about 500 years. It's the, uh, obviously, the, with the two slowest planets, it's the slowest pattern of coming back together like that. But because of their, their funky orbits and stuff, that sextile lasts about 100 years. So most people alive actually have that sextile in their charts. For that reason, we don't want to make too big a deal about it since it's... Uh, since it's so broadly present. Um, but um, what we will talk about is their combined energy um, coming in over to Chiron, which is the quickest of the bunch and the point of the yod. And normally we want to bring our attention to the point of the yod uh, because that's where the finger is pointing, so to speak. So, um, and and the again, when my astrology teacher taught me about the yod, he said it means do this or else. <laughs> um, and of course he was smiling when he said that but what it means is that yod tip is uh, is quite important and there's some kind of emphasis being put on mastering the connection of the energies on the back end with the energy of the tip and in traditional interpretation we would also say that it's, it's uh, going to be only a true yod or its strongest when the quickest of the three planets is at the tip which is the case here so this qualifies, if anyone's going to be using a yod, this would definitely count as one in their book. So let's talk what Chiron means. I, I keep a fairly simple definition of Chiron. It's the wounded healer. And um, on the challenge side, it represents where you get wounded. And that could be emotionally or psychologically or physically. Um, and it can also be where you step into your power as a healer and mentor. The, the wounded healer part is because... Um, what typically happens if someone is a really good healer, it's usually because they really suffered earlier and they were significantly wounded themselves. In, in, in uh, tribal societies, it's the, uh, the, uh, that's called the shamanic illness, uh, commonly, where the person who is destined to be the shaman gets struck down with some really intense accident or in illness, and it often goes on for years. And then once they get better, they're transformed by the experience and open the new levels and able to then heal others. And even in the more secular context of modern society, like psychologists and doctors and such, you know, often that person has, probably more so in the case of psychologists, actually, um, they themselves, you know, have had to really wrestle with psychological issues. And because this has been a prime thing in their life, they've had to study and learn about it, and thus they gain expertise. And their, their working on themselves helps them have the ability through their own experience to assist others. So is this making sense so far, Eleanor, around the meaning of Chiron? Yes. Okay. So, so again, in your evolutionary journey, it's where you get the wounds and have to, uh, to grow through the difficulty. 
And in terms of how you contribute out to the world, it's your own skill as a mentor and healer. And so let's look at how these back-end planets are connecting to empower Chiron. Uh, Pluto is the slowest of the th of the two, and Pluto is, guess what, the psychologist. <laughs> it's actually one of his keywords. Uh, Pluto is the lord of the underworld, and, and metaphorically, that's the depths where all of your old psychological baggage is buried. So Pluto says, I am, my job when I come along is to dig in there and dig up all the stuff steaming and nasty that you've put into your unconscious when it's time to clear it and deal with it and bring it up to the surface and let's get it healed. So Pluto and Chiron have a lot of common meaning that way. Um, Pluto is the psychologist and the transformer and Chiron is the healer and the mentor and the giver of wisdom. So that's a pretty, pretty clear connection between those two, isn't it? Yes. Okay. In fact, uh, Pluto and Chiron have another common element, the shaman. I've seen both planets with shamanic meaning applied to them. So there's another connection. So let's take the Neptune quincunx over to Chiron. Neptune, um, when I talked about your Pisces ascendant, um, Neptune and Pisces are the same energy. One's a planet, one's a sign. So I'm just going to repeat some of the keywords I gave over there. On the challenging side, in terms of what might be part of your wounding, uh, with Neptune and Chiron connecting, um, it could potentially be um, substance abuse issues, it could be escapist tendencies, it could be playing the martyr or the victim, or it could be just having a sense of aimlessness and no real meaning to your life. Um, I won't ask you to confirm or deny any of that. <laughs> um, but on the high side, it also says Neptune can represent the divine flow of information and energy, and that can flow through you into your healing. And I, I should mention also your Chiron is in Taurus. And Taurus, in the healing context, is the sign of more physical healing. So this might be body work or perhaps uh, spiritual healing modalities that involve, you know, physical touch or work on the body as part of the work. Um, so Neptune to Chiron is um, the spiritual energy flowing in for the healing process. Um, let me put a potentially different spin on this, too. This could have a creative flavor as well. You know, we mentioned in passing that you have a bunch of planets in Libra, which is the sign of the artist. And um, Taurus is a creative science. It's ruled by Venus, the artist. It's more about three-dimensional creativity that can be experienced with more than one sense as opposed to like just a flat painting. So this could be creative expression from the Pluto in Libra, by the way, the artist, coming in there and saying, this work the creation of it can be powerful and transformational for you, and it can have a positive transformational effect on others. And Neptune is there saying, I'll send down the inspiration. The muse will sing to you and give you these cool creative ideas to carry forth. So um, let me just reality check this with you for a moment. Um, would you say that you feel more drawn to being the healer or expressing yourself creatively, or is it more about mentoring and giving good advice, or are any of these uh, topics resonant for you? Well, there's a bingo. Body work. <laughs> You're a therapist who does body work? As well, yeah. I'm okay. well, I'm newly a I'm a newly a counselor. Just recently got my degree in starting a private practice. Oh, congratulations. Um, but I have done a fair bit of body work in the past too, and yes, I see them very much complementary to one another. I do want to include that possibility in my counseling practice. Nice. 
Okay, so we just we hit the nail dead on the head there, didn't we? So? <laughs> yeah, and I, and I just, for the record, I had no idea you were a counselor or body worker or anything like that. I was just interpreting Chiron, Pluto, Neptune in the realm of possibilities there. <laughs> but now that I know you're doing it professionally, I'll add in that um, Chiron is in your second house, which is the house of self-earned income <laughs> in Taurus, the sign that also means that. So um, making a living as a mentor or healer is definitely a possibility the chart opens up. And I'll, I'll, I'll add a, uh, a flair to it as well. You know, some people feel that Chiron is a planet that rules Virgo along with Mercury. And your Virgo is on the cusp of your seventh house, which means I would consider Chiron a co-ruler of relationships for you. So with everything we've said about it, one thing I've noticed about the seventh house it can be, of course, friends and people you know well, but it can also be clients. If you're a healer, I mean, I've got a son Chiron conjunction in the seventh house. And most of the times I connect with people is in a healing context professionally. And so to have one of the rulers of your seventh house of one-on-one -on -one contact, which can include professional contact, that, that's another marker of you know professional healer because it brings in the whole Libra connecting with one-on-one -on -one even more deeply than before. Is most of your work one-on-one -on -one with clients? Yes. Okay, so that, that, that really fits the description then. Okay, excellent. We'll be right back with the conclusion of our live listener consultation. I offer three main services at AstroShaman, Astrology, Shamanic Healing, and Awakening Activation. All are equally effective in person or long distance. Choose one or combine two or more services during your session. Astrology offers insights into soul purpose, career, relationships, spirituality, timing, relocation, and much more. In Awakening Activation Sessions, I help you immerse into your own awakened state using simple, powerful invocations, then teach you how to refresh it on your own. Shamanic healing can reduce or eliminate physical, emotional, or mental issues, and usually results in significantly enhanced divine consciousness. I also offer electional astrology to help you pick the perfect date and time for any important event. And be sure to check out my free services page, where you can load up on free forecasts, podcasts, invocations, and music. Sliding scale payment is available by request. You can get a 20% discount during your birthday month, and gift certificates are always available. I work with clients all around the world by phone and Skype. You get a free digital recording of your session, and I accept PayPal and all major credit cards. Finally, my guarantee makes it risk-free. If you don't feel that your experience was helpful, it's free. For more information or to set an appointment, visit astroshaman.com, email info at astroshaman.com, or call 828-338-9852. I love my work, and I look forward to helping you. So is all the stuff we've said here about the odds, does that all feel um, accurate and helpful? Yes. Um, I find also really interesting, I feel like Chiron's really active right now in my chart. Uh, yeah. Uh, I would say so. <laughs> yeah, because I, I'm guessing this is what I've seen, is the Saturn opposition to Chiron and as well my progressed ascendant conjunct Chiron. Yeah, that's big. And transit Chiron uh, quincunx your, your Jupiter too, which is a which is the ruler of both your ascendant and your midheaven. So you got Chiron all over the place. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, that before we jump off from the yod, um, let's. We wanted to transition into a little bit of moving energy work anyway. So, do you have any any loose ends on that natal yod interpretation before we jump to the moving stuff that you've just brought up? Okay, good. All right. Um, so um, let's talk about the transit Chiron quincunx Jupiter, and that, you know, it's receiving the quincunxes natally. So here he is making quincunxes on the fly. So as a transiting planet, Chiron does pretty much what he does natally. I mean, his first point of contact is, is there any old wounds that need cleanup here, anything that needs healing? And when you get Chiron come along, and at this point in history, he's hanging out for about two years from the time he makes approach to an aspect to the time he leaves the orb of the aspect. So during that two years, people tend to get triggered a lot more than usual by people or situations. Um, as I've said many times on the show, I have a uh, an app for that. <laughs> it's the healing invocation. And if you find you're getting triggered by something, it doesn't matter what it is, you can just within say to your higher self, maximum healing that serves highest good please and relax into your breath and you'll you will feel as if a shower of energy got turned on and is washing over you and your higher self will wash away all the energy that it no longer serves your highest good to carry all the dark heavy dense stuff so as chiron aspects jupiter your chart ruler the ancient ruler of pisces right um good time to um clear any wounds you're carrying around how you show yourself to the world um, the natal meaning of Jupiter itself, um, time to clear any wounds that relate to your belief systems, anything to do with religion or philosophy or meaning of life, anything to do with people from foreign cultures or countries or foreign concepts, because Jupiter rules that too. And anything that's really preventing you from moving fully into Jupiter's love of optimism and joy and hope and celebration, because Jupiter loves to let those things shine out. Um, so I would expect anything that's that's standing in the way of those upside expressions of any of those fields could get triggered and come up for clearing while while Chiron spends roughly another year quincunx your Jupiter. So um, any questions on that? No. <laughs> I sense that, yeah. Okay. Now, but that's that's just the more challenging way it can work. Um, the the more easy way could be that Chiron will represent all the healers and mentors who come to you and offer to help you or whom you connect with in some way. You know, you might initiate the contact yourself. Um, it could also be you represented by Chiron because that Jupiter is in your seventh house in Libra. And it could be you acting as a healer and mentor to others as well and helping them clear their stuff. So with the way your particular chart is set up, there's uh, it could be you doing or receiving giving or receiving the energy that's represented by Chiron here. Um, does that make sense? The way my house is set up, I, I'm well, more on the... Can you say that again? No, the way your chart is set up, Jupiter could represent you or it could represent someone else. It could represent yeah. you because it's your ascendant ruler and therefore the first house represents you. But because it's in Libra and in the seventh house, it could represent somebody else. Yes. So Jupiter does double duty in this context. Yeah. Okay, so I hope that that made some kind of sense. Yep, that and, makes sense. And the nature of the aspect of the quincunx is adjustment is needed. So obviously if you're going to do healing and clearing, you'll need to adjust. You'll need to call in divine help if that's how you work with it or whatever modality you use to clear your, your junk when it comes up. 
Um, and you also might have to make some sort of adjustment to connect with someone who, who wants your help or who needs it. So those are, are some ways of thinking about Chiron hitting Jupiter in this context. Um, um, in addition, Jupiter is your technical midheaven ruler. You've got Sagittarius on the midheaven. So this could also represent some kind of healing adjustment in what you do for a living. And I believe you said you just got your counseling license. And have you actually begun professional practice? Um, uh, sort of. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of soft. I just open. finished my degree, and I did do a bunch of internships. So. Okay, but you're not you're not fully out there with your shingle out yet. No, that'll be probably in a couple months, I think. Yay! Good for you. Okay, so there's we could think of that as the adjustment for, for you stepping out more fully as the healer and mentor, Chiron, to uh, get out and start connecting professionally, Jupiter the Midheaven ruler, and Jupiter in the seventh, connecting one-on-one with your clients. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a really lovely way that uh, transit Chiron can quincunx over to Jupiter. So any questions on that particular connection? Okay. Now, you mentioned also you saw that Saturn was opposing Chiron, right? Yes. Okay. And, and most of that work is done, fortunately. Saturn did station around 23 Scorpio. Your natal Chiron is 22 and a half Taurus. So you went through, gosh, many months of probably six to eight months. No, not, not that long. Probably without actually running my transit. I'd say four or five months of Saturn opposing Chiron by transit. But that, in the last month, has finally moved beyond the three-degree window of power. So I'm guessing in until about the last month, you had several months of a lot of intense cleanup and psychological baggage clearing. Is that true? Yeah, probably. Probably? You don't remember? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, Saturn has been schooling me for the last few years. Uh, yeah, he's so. been... Yeah, and for those who aren't visualizing your chart, Saturn... You know, you've got this massive cluster in your 7th and 8th houses, Sun, Saturn, Jupiter, Pluto, uh, Vesta, Mercury, Juno, and Venus that Saturn has passed over in the last several years. So, um, yeah. yeah, so you've been having your, uh, yeah, most of those have been hit just in the last two or three years from Saturn. So that's a lot of Saturn. That's the heaviest duty Saturn you're going to have in a long time. Yeah, and so, then the Pluto-Uranus square, <laughs> making a T-square with my natal Saturn. That's the couple-year transit. I think that underlies everything. But. Yeah, which is which is done now, thank God, because your natal Saturn's 11, Libra. Um, yeah, but Pluto will come back in the fall, so I think there's still some work there. But. Good point, good point. You're right, Pluto is retrograding back, so he's got one last... Uh, I, I spoke too soon on that one. I was thinking more of Uranus and where he's going. Um, so I agree. Um, but again, that always has high-side possibilities because Saturn is... On the high side, he's maturity, structure, responsibility, planning the work, working the plan, being real, um, you know, sticking with things. So if the Uranus-Pluto square by transit hitting Saturn has helped you adopt that more fully in the areas of life where it's helpful, then that could have been a really sweet transit to come through. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think in the end now, yeah, it's been hard, but a lot of hard work, but I think it's been yeah. good. This raises a question for me. So okay. Pluto will do its third pass over um, doing a square with Saturn. Uh-huh. And when is there something about like the first pass, the second pass, and then oh. the third pass, like maybe the third pass, you, it like might feel uh-huh. a little bit more positive. 
Well, um, positive and negative are subjective judgments. <laughs> but okay. the way, now this is not true 100% of the time, what I'm about to say, but it is the general way it seems to work. If you're getting a triple hit from a transiting planet with three exact aspects, uh, the first hit is where you start warming up the theme. It starts coming into prominence. The second retrograde pass is uh, the plot thickens and things get you know really stirred up and the issues at hand are really strong in your field. And the third pass often represents the climax, where everything that's been building up during this planet's triple pass now comes to a head and hopefully we have you know resolution and the return of harmony so that's the uh okay. the archetypal pattern now it, of course if you nail the life lesson on the first pass then you might not even notice the second and third passes <laughs> so it is it is changeable according to how you interact with it but that what i just gave is the typical thing and by the way it doesn't have to be exact i mean if i've got a planet retrograding back if it's truly only a single hit, but it stops and, and stations retrograde within a fraction of a degree of the planet's position, you know, for me, that's as good as an actual conjunction. You know, I've, I observe a three-degree orb of power. And as long as I've got a significant planet within three degrees of his aspect, he's, he's doing his work in that time. So I hope that's helpful around the timing of the, of the transit. Yes. Um, yes. And I'll mention just in passing, you know, you do have... You know, the grand cross we had in April was around 13, between 13 and 14 of the cardinals. The planet that I believe was probably most significantly affected was not Saturn, but Jupiter. Um, because Jupiter, I mean, Saturn's 11 degrees, 12 minutes, he was within a couple degrees. Jupiter at 16, 10 was, you know, maybe a fraction of a degree further. But the point is that, you know, Saturn is had already received most of his hits from the slow guys already by then. So he's already done his thing and he's on the wane in terms of the energetic effect. But Jupiter is is now getting its first hits from some of these guys and has got like three more years of Pluto squaring it. And and not yeah. to mention Saturn doesn't rule any angles in your chart and Jupiter rules your ascendant in your midheaven, right? You see yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So um the Jup all things being equal, I see the Jupiter as much more significant in terms of significant life effect. Um, now, I'll grant you, Saturn is you know exalted in Libra, whereas Jupiter is neutral in Libra. But to me, Jupiter's uh, rulership of two angles kind of gives it the trump in terms of you know a really significant planet to receive such potent aspects. Does that make sense? Yeah. Although I guess it, I would I would guess that it would be. More because it's the more optimistic planet mm -hmm. that it wouldn't be so deeply stirring that something like this, like the Saturn transit, would be. Um, but I, I see your point. Um, Saturn has more of a reputation as a troublemaker than Jupiter does. <laughs> yeah, um, but I guess what I'm saying is, you know, you. Saturn might have been, you know, a more difficult transit, but I think you might see more actual revolutionary change in your life in a more visible way from the hits to Jupiter because Jupiter well, rules the two visible angles. So, so again, we could, you know, they're both important. We don't have to rank them necessarily. I was just trying to describe the difference in how they're set up versus how one being hit by the Uranus-Pluto square would be affected versus the other. So mm -hmm. I hope that was of, of some help to give that description. Okay. Thank you. 
And then let's close. We're going, uh, this is a fairly long one right now. Our clock is at about an hour and eight or nine minutes. So this will be a slightly long live listener consultation. But I think we're covering really juicy ground. And dear listener, if you've stayed with us this long, then clearly you have an interest in some of the more technical aspects of astrology. Yay. Yay for you. (laughs) So let's close with um, the progression you mentioned, which is progressed ascendant conjunct Chiron. And for those who don't know, I'm using secondary progressions, which is planets moving a year for a day. The planets move at the same relative speeds as they do when they're transiting. The moon is super quick, Pluto is super slow, but they're moving a year for a day. However long that planet takes to travel um, in one day by transit, it takes a full year to move that far by progression. Way, way, way slow by progression. So when something lines up by progression, it's a big deal. Okay? So right now, your progressed ascendant is 22 degrees, 14 minutes. Natal Chiron is 22.31, which means probably in about three months, we're going to have them right on top of each other exact. So let's, um, let's analyze what we know about this to define it. Um, progressed ascendant is the evolving sense of your identity or persona. Chiron is the healer and the mentor, right? So what one might expect from this is that Already, you might be carrying the persona of the healer and mentor more powerfully and might continue to have that grow into a more significant part of your persona over roughly the next year or so. Um, Are you already noticing, you know, having completed your program and getting ready to hang your shingle out, are you already carrying that energy? Because you told me that is what you're going to be doing for a living. Right. I mean, everybody who meets me knows that I'm a therapist, so they automatically... It's interesting when you're when you I guess when when you're a healer or counselor or whatever, people automatically feel like they can tell you things and, mm-hmm. and, and go more deeply with you or seek your advice or. <laughs> what you can do is just pull out your uh, your phone stop and say, "Okay, you got five minutes free, then you're on the clock." A <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, little joke there. Um, so. Um, so that's one obvious way to take the the evolving sense of identity and, and latch it up more with Chiron, which is timing up just about perfectly with your movement into professional practice. That's pretty extraordinary. You you didn't time that deliberately, did you? No. No, but that's true, eh? If it's in a few months, yeah, that would that would be time. Yeah, that, that timing is, is actually pretty stunning given that your mask or persona is about to become much more like Chiron as the progressed ascendant lands right on top of it. <laughs> Okay, but let's not forget who's on the other side of that. If the progressed ascendant is in one place, that means the progressed descendant must be right across the chart from it, right? Uh-huh. So that means your progressed descendant is about to oppose Chiron. The, and as we said already, the opposition is the angle of relationship, right? So when the descendant and Chiron interact, this would suggest um, some possible strong relationship healing and um, possibly relationship wounding as well. So um, one thing I would recommend as your progressed descendant opposes natal Chiron is to watch for wounding that rises up in your relationships. This might be your committed romantic partnership. It could be any other person important in your life. And um, my guess is that you may find for about the next year more of people, you know, triggering you than usual. And again, I think the healing invocation is a very handy thing to pull out when that happens so that you can just ask spirit to send that shower of energy down and flush off the heavy energy that got triggered by that that you don't need to carry around anymore. 
uh, but again, could also represent you stepping into the role of healer and mentor with those you're relating with, as in your professional practice, and might even be people bringing healing and mentoring to you. Like I said, it can kind of run both ways. So that's that's some thoughts on progressed descendant opposing Chiron. Any questions on that? No. And really, I'm not sure we have to say much more about that. That this this particular lineup is actually pretty straightforward. Do you have any uh, any questions about that piece of interpretation? No, that sounds great. Okay, beautiful. Okay, in that case, um, I think we might be close to done. Before we before we say that, though, let me check to make sure you don't have any major loose ends on anything we've talked about. I feel complete. Yay! Okay, I always ask at the end, was I helpful? Okay, sweet. Okay. I like to make sure I did good work. All right. Yeah, then thank we're, you so much. My pleasure. Well, thank you so much for working with me, Eleanor. Um, and um, I'm trying to think of I just want to thank you for uh, for being part of the show. The reason you got to do this is because you were one of the ones who sent in a personal question. Um, and um, I may have already mentioned this earlier in the show. If I, if I, if I did the show right, I did. I'm... Um, I sometimes record these sessions a little while before they come onto the show, but at the moment, as of today, May 27th, 2014, I'm down to just a handful of listener questions remaining. So if you enjoyed listening to me working with Eleanor, dear listener, and would like me to do the same for you, then please send in a personal question uh, to info at astroshaman.com, and I'll put your personal question in the pile. They are picked by a random sequence generator, so I can't predict whose is going to be picked when, but... If you're in the pile, you're a whole lot more likely to get picked than if you're not. <laughs> so send that on in if you like. So, Eleanor, thank you again for choosing to work with me uh, to do this show segment. I'm really grateful, and I wish you the very best as you move forward into your new practice. Thank you, Benjamin. Okay. wish you the best as well. Thank you. All right. Have a beautiful day. You too. Bye-bye. We're wrapping up another episode of This Week in Astrology. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend or post or tweet about us or donate to support us at thisweekinastrology.com. You can link to our Facebook page and Twitter feed where I post daily forecasts from thisweekinastrology.com and astroshaman.com. You can listen to This Week in Astrology on your smartphone or tablet at stitcher.com. And if you're an iTunes listener, please do subscribe through iTunes and help us remain the number one astrology podcast on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. I wish you infinite blessings as the stars light your way. This Week in Astrology is copyright 2014 by Astro Shaman. All rights reserved, although enthusiastic sharing is encouraged. You can access our free comprehensive audio archive from thisweekinastrology.com. If you'd like me to illustrate the weekly forecast with your chart, please send me your date, time, and city of birth. This also gives you a chance to win a free session with me every time the seasons change. I welcome your personal questions for my live listener consultation segments. I also welcome your general astrology questions and feedback. Just email info at astroshaman.com. I look forward to making you a part of This Week in Astrology.
Here's this week's index. The overview begins at 2 minutes, 4 seconds. Monday, 3.11. Tuesday, 3.16. Wednesday, 3.43. Thursday, 4.59. Friday, 5.20. Saturday, 6.04. Sunday, 8.13. Next week's transits, 10.37. Announcements, 12.37. And our live listener consultation, 16.37. Thank you so much for listening to This Week in Astrology.